the Sabbath as a consolidation of the reign of God over his created and redemptive kingdom. And so as we trace the theological thread of the Sabbath from creation to the kingdom of God, Remember in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, that's what Jesus comes doing. He comes announcing the gospel of the kingdom of God. And that's a kind of thesis statement for the entirety of the Gospel of Mark. Everything Jesus does, everything Jesus says should be interpreted in the light of Mark 1.15, the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And so as we trace that thread of the Sabbath from the creation to the kingdom of God, from Genesis to the fullness of time, from the beginning of the world to the accomplishment of redemption by the Son, we come to realize that Christ is the King of the Sabbath. In other words, all of the meaning and significance that was inherent to the Sabbath concept in Scripture comes to its fullest fruition and development in the person and work of Jesus the Messiah. And so let me boil down the essence of what our text is getting at and put it in a nutshell for you. Mark is teaching his readers that if you miss who Christ is in terms of his identity and his mission, If you miss who he is, then you will not only miss the significance of the Sabbath, but you'll have a wrong view of it altogether, not to mention a totally aberrant practice when it comes to the proper observance of it. Or to put it positively, it is the appreciation for who Jesus is and what he came to do that is vital, absolutely vital, for a God-honoring new covenant conception of the theology and meaning and significance of the Sabbath. But before I attempt to demonstrate that, let's just briefly recap what we discussed last week so we can have it in mind as we build upon that argument and seek to develop it further. Jesus and the passage at the end of Mark chapter 2 did not violate the Sabbath. He was violating the man-made extra-biblical traditions of the Pharisees and their scribes by which they had hemmed in the Sabbath with all kinds of regulations that God had never commanded. They didn't use a sickle to harvest the grain. They used their hand. They were not laboring as they ate of the grain. And so the Messiah never violates the law of God. Christ never sinned. He, he never uh, held to a, what we call an antinomian view to the law of God, that it can be simply disregarded and cast away. Rather, Messiah came to honor the law, to magnify the law, in order to expose the spiritual reality of the law and really to teach the breadth and the depth of the law of God and its demands. He fulfills the law. He doesn't dishonor the law. And so when he says the Sabbath was made for man, he uses this Greek word anthropos, man, indicating that the Sabbath was instituted for the benefit of mankind. 
He was referring to Adam and his posterity. It wasn't just made for Israel. It was made for man. Creation ordinance in Genesis 2, we see Israel observing the Sabbath in Exodus 16 prior to the ratification of the Mosaic Covenant. And we see a blessedness pronounced upon Gentiles and eunuchs who observe God's Sabbath during the New Covenant era in Isaiah 56. And we also said that there was a massive redemptive historical shift that occurred when Jesus came and died and rose again. And now the day for the instituted worship of God, the public formal instituted worship of God, has transitioned from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. Nonetheless, there remains permanence and perpetuity of the moral principle of the moral law of God, the fourth commandment of the moral law of God summarized in the Ten Commandments. And so having all that in mind, let's now consider the big picture. And if you would, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. This is the text that the Lord was alluding to when he said the Sabbath wasn't made, or man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. And he's getting at the order of events uh, within the creative work of God. Man was made on the sixth day. Man already existed. And then the Sabbath was instituted on the seventh day in order to serve the will of God and the plan and the purposes of God relative to man and in order to benefit man. And so Genesis chapter 2, and we'll be looking at the first three verses in particular. Just a few comments first. I'm sure we're all familiar with this passage, but what we might not be familiar with is the context into which Moses is writing. We call this context, this historical context, the ancient Near East. The ancient Near East. And that corresponds roughly to the modern Middle East. This region included Mesopotamia, which is the land between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. It included Anatolia, which is roughly modern-day Turkey. It included the Levant, which is modern Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, and Jordan, as well as Persia, which is modern Iran, and ancient Egypt in northern Africa, which in, in, in antiquity uh, for a time was the mightiest of the human empires. And so the heart of this region of the ancient Near East, the heart of this region in terms of human populations was initially Mesopotamia, which is known as historians by the term the cradle of civilization. By the way, Mesopotamia is where Ur of the Chaldees was located, out of which Abraham was called when the word of the Lord came to him. And so as Moses is writing Genesis by the inspiration of the Spirit, he is engaging and confronting the world of ideas around him. And that world, by the way, was predominantly pagan. 
Acts 7.22 says, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, which means that he was conversant with the world of ideas and acquainted with the accumulation of human knowledge at the time. He would have been acquainted also with the writings that were in circulation among ancient people. And so he wrote Genesis in part to subvert the paganism around him, to supplant the idolatry that was bound up in the culture, and to assert the supremacy and kingship of Yahweh, the one true God, in advocacy for uncompromising monotheism, the worship of the one true God alone and no other God. And so the text of Genesis 1 and 2 draws from themes that were common to the ancient Near East as it refutes the pagan corruptions that were associated with those themes in the belief systems of the ancients. And this becomes clear, for instance, if you compare the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2 with an ancient document from Babylon known as Enuma Elish. Well, that document predates Moses by at least a couple of centuries. And it's what we call a pagan cosmology, a creation myth. And in that myth, the god Marduk, who, by the way, was the patron deity of the great Hammurabi of Babylon, Babel, uh, Marduk, uh, according to the Enuma Elish, battles with the forces of chaos and achieves victory over them in order to establish order at the creation of the world. But the pagan god Marduk is an impassioned, finite god who expends great energy in order to battle with and subdue the chaos. Contrast that with Genesis. Yahweh, Elohim, the one true God, he doesn't battle anybody. He speaks and he brings everything out of nothing by the word of his power. There's no struggle. There's no conflict. The waters of the great deep and the darkness covering them and the state of initial chaos in Genesis 1-2 is all overcome by effortless declarations of the almighty word of God. He just speaks. Light be. And the light was. Literally, it says in the Hebrew. He just speaks and it was by divine fiat that flexes the muscles of absolute omnipotence to the unrivaled glory of the God of Israel. He speaks and things come to be. And what Moses is stressing in the creation account is not only the creatorhood of God, but the kingship of God. His royal kingship, his sovereign majesty and authority and dominion and might. And that's how the ancients would have read it. And the words of Ecclesiastes 8.4, where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Well, never was there such power in the words of any king as we read about in Genesis chapter 1. 
And also in the ancient Near East, kingship was closely associated with wisdom. Wisdom. And so God, that by the way becomes a prominent theme in Solomon, who was endowed with wisdom in order to reign and to rule in the theocracy. And so God's wisdom is displayed as he made everything good, all with beautiful order and harmony for a purpose. The imagery of ancient kingship, in other words, pervades Genesis chapter 1. It's portraying God as the king who created the heavens and the earth as the domain of his rule to be his cosmic temple palace. Heaven is his throne, and the earth is a footstool of his regal dominion. And he fills the earth with the train of his royal robes and his holy presence. Remember when Isaiah saw the, 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 the vision of the Holy One in chapter 6 of his book? And it said the train of his robe filled the temple. And the temple is a picture of the world, really, because God created the world to ultimately fill it with his presence and to be his temple. So his royal majesty fills the domain, the dominion that he made in Genesis. He made the cosmos. And he didn't do it by winding it up like a big clock and then letting it tick on its own like the deists tell us. But he made it in order to sit enthroned over it as the king, to govern it, to be intimately involved with it, to judge it, to care for it, to order it as a glorious kingdom. And now that brings us to the first few verses of Genesis 2. It says, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. The king had established a perfect creation as the domain of his kingdom. He had no more creative work to do. The kingdom was established. And it says, and on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now why did God rest? He wasn't tired. He wasn't physically exhausted. Isaiah 40, 28 says, The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. Rather, his rest here in these verses is associated with the establishment and consolidation of his kingly reign. That's what's happening. He had no other thing to put in order. The kingdom was organized just as he had intended. As one Old Testament scholar by the name of Meredith Klein said, there is not, quote, any suggestion of the creator's attaining at some point to a sovereignty he had formerly lacked. To predicate an enthronement of God on the seventh day of creation history is not to deny that the creative activity of God is from the beginning an exercise of absolute sovereignty which he enjoys as an original and everlasting prerogative of his very godhood. So when we're saying 
that God sat enthroned over the cosmos on the Sabbath, that that was his enthronement. We're, we're not denying his absolute sovereignty prior to that. This is rather a realization or a consolidation of that kingly reign. And Klein goes on to say, it is simply saying that creation produced a new theater for the manifestation of God's eternal majesty. And when the heavenly throne and earthly footstool had been prepared, God assumed his rightful royal place in that new sphere. End quote. Well, that original Sabbath represented God's delight in the world. Remember, he looked at everything he had made, and it was all good. God had delight in the world, and it was all rightly aligned with him in that pre-fallen state, in a condition of shalom, of holistic peace and prosperity and holiness and abundance and well-being. And so, again, the Sabbath represented the realization and consolidation of God's kingly reign, his harmonized enthronement over the world in a state of peace and rest and shalom. But there are more layers to this. There's more layers. The Sabbath of Genesis 2 was established, as we said, as a creation ordinance. By the way, just like work and marriage, there are three creation ordinances in the pre-fallen world, work, marriage, and Sabbath. But this initial created order was never intended to be the final, consummate, eternal order of the world. While the creation of man on the sixth day was the capstone of God's work of creation, it was the Sabbath of the seventh day that constituted the goal, the completion, the initial perfection and omega point of creation. The Sabbath, therefore, was what we call an archetype. It was a pattern, a prophetic pattern that anticipated a consummate glorification of the world at some point in the future, a point when God's felt presence, his manifest presence, the Shekinah spirit of radiant splendor and glory would saturate the world and convert the entire cosmos into the temple of God's manifest presence. It was God's plan from the beginning to cover the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea. Says Isaiah 11.9 and Habakkuk 2.14. And so the weekly Sabbath of the seventh day pointed forward to an eternal, endless day of endless light and glory and delight when God's kingdom would be perfected in its final state. And so on the sixth day, when God made man as his image bearer, he commanded him, verses 26 to 28 of Genesis chapter 1, he commanded him to fill the earth and subdue it, to be fruitful and multiply, and to exercise dominion over the earth. And in the execution of this work, Adam, remember we said this before, Adam was to pattern himself after the pattern of the work of his father, God. And this, by the way, is the basis for our seven-day week. 
God is the exemplar and pattern of working six days and resting on one, as he points out in the fourth commandment of Exodus 20. Yet if mankind had not sinned and fallen, there would have come a point in which he would have accomplished the task of exercising dominion in order to usher in the perfected kingdom. Man would have attained to a right to the tree of life and would have been sealed in immortality in an irreversible state of righteousness and glory. He would have been permanently glorified. That's not the condition he was made in. Man was made in a condition of mutability. He could sin and he could not sin. He had the option of falling, of lapsing, and of incurring the curse of death. But upon persevering in obedience, he would have been sealed in the state of perfection had he not sinned. And thus, the seventh-day Sabbath was a prophetic pointer to the eternal Sabbath that mankind would have entered had he fulfilled his original condition, or commission rather, if he had not fallen into sin. As G.K. Beale says, quote, the ultimate goal of humanity was to enter into the kind of consummative rest into which God himself had entered, end quote. And so that was the goal. For Adam to persevere, for Adam to be a faithful image bearer of God, a faithful, creaturely visible replica of God, reflecting God on the earth and reigning over the earth in faithfulness to the crown of the divine king. But that goal became frustrated because man, instead of exercising dominion faithfully, as an obedient kingly representative of God, he sought to unlawfully usurp dominion that did not belong to him. He wanted to be like God, but in an evil, conceited, autonomous way. Genesis 3.5. And so the entrance of sin and the fall of man frustrated initially that goal of an eternal Sabbath. But that doesn't mean that God's purpose was thwarted. God did not uh, revoke that goal. He didn't change his mind. He rather gave a promise of redemption. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman would reverse the curse and rescue man from that fallen condition. A son of man would come as a descendant of Adam and Eve. He would perfectly image God unlike Adam. In fact, he would be the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. He would faithfully carry out the dominion mandate, albeit in a spiritual and redemptive way. He would enter into his work, and he would accomplish his work with no deviation whatsoever from the will of the Father. And so he would say in John 17.4, when he prayed to the Father, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work that you gave me 
to do. Adam was commissioned to work in the garden, to exercise dominion, and to be instrumental in ushering in the consolidated, consummate kingdom of God. But Adam committed apostasy. Christ comes, he fulfills the commission. He's the last Adam. He's the perfect Adam. He fulfills the work that the Father gave him to do. And so he would pray and the next verse, John 17, 5, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so the incarnate Son in his humanity, upon accomplishing his perfect work, would be glorified in a state of immutable, glorified human perfection, such that he would never even be tempted with sin again. Because of his work, the earth would be filled with the glory of the spirit and splendor of the Lord. The Messiah establishes and consolidates the uncontested Sabbath reign of God. Genesis 2, 1-3 points to Jesus, Messiah. Well, consider with me another text. Hebrews chapter 4 and the first 11 verses. This will take our argument to the next level. This is a really fascinating text, Hebrews 4, verses 1 to 11. And I don't intend to spend much time on it now, but just want to point out a few things that relate to what we're saying. And so let's go ahead and read it. And as we do, think about how it relates to this whole Bible, this biblical, theological, broad, canonical theme of the Sabbath. It says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, by the way, he's continuing the argument that started in Hebrews chapter 3, where the author to the Hebrews quotes Psalm 95, which promises rest, a kind of Sabbath rest. He says, Let us fear, lest any of you seem to come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. And the them that he's talking about is the generation of the children of Israel whose carcasses fell in the wilderness by the judgment of God. They heard the gospel. They had the good news. They had the promise of salvation, but they didn't believe it. And so they perished and came short of the Sabbath rest of God. That's what he says. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. But he says, For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, quoting Psalm 95:11. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. The works of God, the creative works of God, were finished from the foundation of the world. So he's tying in Psalm 95 with Genesis chapter 2. Verse 4, For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Direct quote from Genesis 2.2. 2. And again in this place, 
Now going back to cite Psalm 9511, they shall not enter my rest. God rested on the seventh day from all his works, but he says of Israel, they shall not enter my rest. Since it therefore it remains that some must enter it, in other words, this is a future rest that is being portrayed by David in Psalm 95. And those to whom it was preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Quoting Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8. And then notice what he says. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he, that's God through David, would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. What he says there remains a rest for the people of God, he uses this Greek word sabbatismos, which is literally there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is a future rest, in other words, of which the promised land of Canaan was only a type and a picture. Look at verse 10. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. And I believe that verse is talking about the believer who perseveres in faith through this life in order to enter the heavenly Canaan of glory. So as to cease from his labors and the service of God in this world. We are the church in the wilderness, in other words. And when we go to glory, we graduate to the eternal Sabbath rest. And notice what he says, verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. In other words, rather than abandoning Christ and reverting to the Jewish ceremonies and types, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Let us persevere in the faith, is what he's saying. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. That is, perish like the Israelites in the wilderness. And so notice a few things about what the author to the Hebrews is saying. First, Israel's possession of their royal inheritance in the land of Canaan is depicted as rest. It's what he calls it again and again in this passage, rest. And he even uses the term Sabbath to describe it. The author to the Hebrews is drawing from numerous passages in the Old Testament that refer to Israel's possession of the land in precisely terms of rest. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 9 to 11. Listen to what Moses said there. For as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. Remember, Moses led them up to the brink of the promised land, but they didn't enter the land under Moses. And then Moses says, But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest, from all your enemies round about, so that you dwell in safety, then there will be a place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. 
God will take up his reign among you with his manifest presence once you enter the rest of the promised land. And then when Solomon takes dominion of the whole territory promised to Abraham, he prays in 1 Kings 8.56, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. And so the inheritance of the land of Canaan is rest. The promised land was an echo of Eden. It was a type and prophetic picture of the heavenly inheritance to come. That's one of the points the author to the Hebrews is making. He cites Psalm 95, where David is speaking of a future rest, of a future eternal Sabbath in the heavenly Canaan. David already experienced the inheritance of the promised land, speaking of the literal promised land, and yet he portrays the rest of the promised land as yet future. That's the heavenly Canaan rest. And so that's why the author says in Hebrews 4, 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterward spoken of another day. That is another day of rest. So that's, that's my first point. Second point here, we see in this that the Sabbath ordinance of creation, quoted in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 4, took on a redemptive significance. It took on a redemptive significance. The conquest of Canaan under Joshua was an initial step toward the fulfillment of the promise of redemption. It was a step toward not only the restoration of Edenic paradise, but also a gesture toward the goal of a glorious and unending Sabbath rest, which was initially the goal of mankind in Eden. Joshua, in other words, repeated the pattern of Adam after the pattern of God in Genesis. Working for six days, taking dominion for six days, realizing the Sabbath rest on the seventh day. That pattern is, is repeated. In six days, God had subdued the chaos, and on the seventh day, he realized his Sabbath reign over the consolidated cosmic kingdom. And then Joshua, patterned after God and Adam, was tasked to take dominion over the land, to subdue the chaotic idolaters. And once that was done, God would dwell among them. He would consolidate his reign among the children of Israel as he would make his name and his glory dwell there, as Moses said in Deuteronomy 12. However, because of sin, Joshua had to do something that Adam did not have to do in the beginning. Joshua had to battle with and defeat the enemies of the people of God. The demon worshipers over which stood the influence of Satan and his fallen angels. The power of the serpent had to be broken over the land of Canaan in order for Israel to inherit the Sabbath rest that that land typified. And so again, the Sabbath ordinance, with all its prophetic and forward-looking significance, took on a redemptive feature after the fall of man. 
The land had to be cleansed. And God's people had to be rescued from the influence of Satan in order to enjoy the rest that God had promised. In the third place, the biblical narrative makes it clear that Jesus Christ is the greater Joshua who ushers in the Sabbath rest that David prophesied about in Psalm 95. Joshua's victory over the dominion of satanic powers in Canaan was only a type of the victory of the greater Joshua on a cosmic scale. And Jesus accomplished this work of defeating the devil and achieving Sabbath rest through his death and resurrection. Hebrews 2.14 says, And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And so through the cross, Christ conquered the devil. And then, John 16, 11, by the way, says the ruler of this world is judged. He was overthrown. He was defeated. And then through his resurrection, Christ opened up the way into the heavenly Canaan. The heavenly Canaan. He ascended. He sat on his throne over the kingdom. And thus through his death and resurrection... The Son of God established his kingdom, and now he sits enthroned over it, fulfilling the redemptive historical and theological significance of the Sabbath. That's what's going on. Therefore, and this is what Mark is alluding to in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus Christ embodies in his person and work the glorious reality the theological substance, and that future-looking hope of everything that the Sabbath pointed to. Hence he is, as Mark 2.28 says, the Lord of the Sabbath. He is enthroned over the Sabbath as the Lord of the consolidated kingdom of God, and he reigns and extends his kingdom now to the ends of the earth. And actually, the correlation between the kingdom of God and the Sabbath reign of God is what the story is pointing to in the first five verses of Mark 3. Remember, the whole gospel account should be read in the light of the inauguration of the kingdom of God through Jesus Messiah. And as he says to the Pharisees in verse 4, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life, or to kill, and he healed the man on the Sabbath. And that wasn't just to provoke the Pharisees. It was to demonstrate that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. It was to manifest a taste of the eternal Sabbath to come. Christ becomes righteously indignant with the Pharisees and their scribes, because they didn't want him to heal on the Sabbath. But the whole concept of the Sabbath is associated with life, with fullness of blessing, with the goodness of God. And so the healing of the man with a withered hand in the synagogue speaks of the goodness of God, 
of healing and redemption and life and salvation. When the redemptive reign of God is fully realized, everything under his saving lordship will be brought into alignment with its life-giving creator and king. Thus the reign of God will realize the total reversal of the curse and all its effects. God's people will rest from all their temptations, from all their afflictions, from all their burdens and infirmities, and, of course, from all their enemies, too. Jesus was showing in time, in that synagogue, on the Sabbath, a small taste of the glory of the eternal Sabbath to come. Yet there's something very important that we need to keep in mind when it comes to Christ's kingdom and the Sabbath reign. It has already begun, but it has not yet been brought into its fullness. Christ currently reigns over the redemptive kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God has not yet come in its fullness. And so since the saints on earth have not yet entered the eternal Sabbath rest, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. And there remains the necessity of observing one day in seven as a precursor to the rest to come. And so finally, please go with me to Revelation chapter 1. But the Apostle John makes this statement as if in passing. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, and so forth. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And so he makes this statement concerning the time in which he was taken up in the Spirit and shown the revelation he received. So this simple phrase, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Well, the Lord's Day celebrates the most pivotal event in the history of the world as a weekly memorial of the resurrection of Christ. Because the tomb in which Jesus was laid became the womb out of which the new creation was born. His resurrection marks the formal inauguration of the kingdom of God and the beginning of the new creation. And that's what caused this shift in the day of God's appointed worship from the seventh day to the first day of the week. That's the day John's referring to by this adjective, Lord's. This is the Lord's day. It's his day. And it's interesting because Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments, when it states the fourth commandment to honor the Sabbath day and sanctify it, it states that Israel should sanctify the Sabbath to commemorate God's work of creation. But then Deuteronomy 5, the other list of the Ten Commandments in the books of Moses gives another reason for why Israel should observe the Sabbath. It says they should observe it to commemorate God's work of redemption. 
We have creation in, in Exodus 20 and redemption in Deuteronomy 5. The Sabbath memorialized and celebrated God's great work of creation and redemption. Remember I said before that the author to the Hebrews was stressing that the, the, the Sabbath has taken on a redemptive significance. Creation and redemption. And now, an account of the work of God in Christ, we have a new and greater creation and a consummate and greater redemption to celebrate than what the Israelites did. And so we see that in the biblical theology of the Lord's Day, all these rich biblical motifs and themes, they converge together. The themes of kingdom and resurrection and new creation and redemption and Sabbath rest and kingly reign, they're all tied together and they're all summed up in Christ. Now it's noteworthy that in Revelation 1.10, John speaks of the Lord's Day as an established convention in the first century, which is widely attested, by the way, among the earliest Christian writings. The church father, Justin Martyr, he wrote about this in the second century, describing the day that the church worshipped. He made the connection, he actually makes this connection between the Lord's Day, the resurrection of Christ, and the dawn of the new creation through Christ. He says this, and I quote, And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read. Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly because, listen to this, it is the first day on which God having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day, rose from the dead. End quote. God's creative work, Christ's resurrection, new creation, Lord's Day worship. He ties it all together. Another early Christian writing called the Didache, literally translated means the teaching, the teaching of the 12 apostles, it dates most probably uh, to the mid to late first century, um, probably before the book of Revelation itself was written. And it says in chapter 14, verse 1, now this is non-canonical, but it is an early Christian writing. It says, on the Lord's own day, and this is a command, on the Lord's own day, gather together and break bread and give thanks. And so the word Lord's there is actually an adjective in the Greek text of the Didache, which is precisely what's used in Revelation 1.10 of the Lord's Day. And it's also the same adjectival word that's used in 1 Corinthians 11.20 to speak of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Day and the Lord's Supper. As the supper is consecrated by the Lord in a special way, so is the day that he uniquely calls his. He consecrated it so that we would sanctify it. Well, all four canonical gospels state that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, 
That's Matthew 28, 1, Mark 16, 2, Luke 24, 1, and John 20 and verse 1. All four Gospels. And the reason for that is not just historical accuracy, but it's to make a theological point. Sunday was the day that the apostolic church would gather for worship. And so the moral principle embedded in the fourth commandment of the Decalogue to sanctify a day to the worship of God did not change. But the day in which it is to be observed did change. And the reason for this is to center it, is to center the day for God's people to worship around the Son of Man, who is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's the day that we gather around our risen Lord to glorify him for his great work of new creation and redemption. And so let me just spell out a few practical implications here in closing. First, it is our moral obligation to congregate on the Lord's day and to worship the risen Christ. The practice of worshiping with God's people on Sunday, it's not just a Christian tradition. It's biblically sanctioned. It has precedent in the authoritative pattern of the apostles themselves in conformity with the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the biblical testimony leads us to deduce by inference that it is a mandate from God. There is no such mandate, by the way, pertaining to every, any other day of the week. But there is concerning the Lord's Day. We may or may not worship on other days of the week, but we are commanded to worship on the Lord's Day. That's the day that God has appointed for his worship. And therefore, we may not omit attendance to the public worship of God on the Lord's Day except to our guilt. Unless, of course, we are providentially hindered. There are those whose employers don't honor the Lord's Day and require them to work. There are those who are hindered through some kind of sickness or infirmity or some other matter that they have to attend to. But if you habitually absent yourself from worship on the Lord's Day simply because you don't make it a priority then I'll say this as gently but as bluntly as I can, you're sinning, and you need to repent. And the way you repent is by asking for forgiveness and mending your conduct. Well, in the second place, we should have a high regard and esteem for the Lord's Day. We should. We should spurn the influence of our ungodly modern culture that has cast off any notion of the Lord's Day, of setting aside a day for worship that is, by the way, repealed the blue laws. Have you heard of the blue laws? The blue laws stem from Puritan England uh, due to the influence of the Reformation there. And the blue laws came to be a part of jurisprudence in England. The blue laws prohibited unnecessary establishments from opening up on the Lord's Day so that people wouldn't have to work. And America, because of our British roots, we retain those laws up until just uh, 
several decades ago, they began to be repealed, and first of all, in blue cities. I read an article recently put out uh, by this secular group that did an extensive survey over the course of decades, and they were analyzing why middle-aged people are increasingly experiencing sudden deaths of despair. So they call it deaths of despair. And they describe that as deaths by suicide and drug overdose and, and things like that. Tragic deaths of despair. And after decades, uh, analyzing the, the data from decades, the secular group concluded that the rate, the, the, the higher rates of death of despair correspond precisely to the cities and jurisdictions where the blue laws have been repealed. And the study concludes that the increase in the deaths of despair is because people don't go to church. <laughs> and they further said that it has no correlation with private religion and Bible reading and prayer, but rather whether people attend public worship rather than working on the Lord's Day. They didn't say Lord's Day. That's my word, but that's, that's what they concluded. And so we should resist this. We should have a high regard and esteem for the Lord's Day. It's for our well-being. It's for our refreshment. It's for our spiritual good. And finally, we should sanctify our Lord's Days by setting them apart to God in their totality. In their totality. We shouldn't be engaging in unnecessary work on the Lord's Day except in cases of piety and necessity and mercy. That is to do deeds of mercy or due to necessity because it's providentially necessary. Rather, we should devote our Lord's Day to acts of devotion, to prayer, to praise, to reading and meditating on the word of God, to doing works of mercy, to abounding in good works toward our brethren and our neighbor, to fellowshipping with the people of God, to exercises of spiritual edification and rest for body and for soul. God has established this not, not just the morning, but, but the day. And he asked that we sanctify the day to him as a day of worship, public worship, private worship, but a day of worship, of edification, of spiritual refreshment. So we should learn to honor and esteem his day out of love and esteem and honor for Christ, who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have made this kind provision for us, Lord, and that you have set apart within your week a day in which we can celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so help us, Lord, to have a right and biblical and spiritual view of the Lord's day. Help us, Lord, that our minds may be renewed and our wills may be inclined, Father, to pursue you and to seek your face, Lord, diligently on this your day. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.